Hi, it's Arjun. Welcome to my summer video series. Haven't done a video in a while. I do have some professional personal travel coming up, so probably a few more videos than usual this summer, but wanted to use this recent bout of downside volatility to emphasize and go back to a point that I've featured throughout a super spike since it started in November. And this idea of having a super vol mindset rather than a super cycle mindset. I think we are in for a decade plus of pretty good, uh, let's just call it super cycle type energy market conditions, but super vol, making friends as both companies and investors with what is going to be a very volatile environment, I think is critical to navigating this very crazy energy transition era that we find ourselves in. Here's some PowerPoint slides uh, to follow. Thank you. So oil and gas volatility is nothing new. My friend Bob McNally wrote a great book on it called Crude Volatility. It is part of investing in the sector. And I think oftentimes people wish it would go away. Um, frankly, the only question really is, how can you be set up to thrive in what I would call a super vol environment? It's not about wishing volatility away or trying to make up excuses for why it'll be less volatile going forward or for some reason that it will only be an upside even if the longer term trend is something that is bullish uh, along the way there's going to be lots of corrections as we've obviously observed here in the last month or so in a nutshell your best offense is often a strong defense and what do i mean by that fortress balance sheet high returns on capital and a low cost asset base i don't think any of those points should surprise a super spike reader. And of course, we are coming off a period where CapEx has been restrained. We've had robust free cash flow. And to the industry's credit, uh, balance sheet health has improved quite dramatically. The return on capital improvement uplift, um, clearly returns on capital are much better than what we saw over the previous five years. But I think the real test of have you sustainably improved, improved your return on capital, it actually usually comes at the trough of the cycle. At the trough of the cycle, are you profitable uh, or at least break even? That's the real true test of time on returns. But at least heretofore, uh, in the last year or so, we can say industries improved its returns. And uh, this idea of a low-cost asset base is going to vary by uh, company or even by, by project area, but that clearly is the goal. So balance sheet health improving. So this is for industry, the, I'm going to call it uh, 78 companies, I think, across mostly the majors, uh, some of the NOCs, EMPs, uh, gas EMPs, the oily guys, and the refiners and a handful of service companies. I think a, a critical point here is getting a little bit cut off by my picture, but as of the end of the first quarter of 2022, uh, the industry has actually erased the net debt it took on during the uh, bust years of 2015 to, uh, through 2020, which, which is very nice. We're kind of back to uh, the end of the super cycle era, uh, which itself had seen debt increase from a low of 2005 to 2014. This, this graph is just net debt for industry again. The green bars indicate debt decreased in a given year. Red indicates it increased in a given year. And again, the last data point is as of March 31st. And we've at least wiped out the debt during the bus period. And there's a chance uh, that we can actually take off more debt uh, if oil stays, you know, above $75, $80 a barrel, as I, I think it will in coming years. So 
I, I want to spend a moment on this issue of volatility. It, it has been a key theme of Super Spiked, and I want to add some maybe greater definition around what, what I mean by it. And it, it is a core part of being an EP company. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. I think too often management teams and even investors, people get to some sort of consensus oil price. And then when they talk about volatility, they're usually using too low of a sensitivity relative to whatever consensus or long-term average uh, is in vogue at the moment. So this is a graph. Um, it's quarterly WTI oil prices uh, relative to the five-year average. That is the, the one standard deviation move there is how is what I'm calling volatility. Uh, and then on the that's on the left axis. The right axis is in any given quarter, um, how many standard deviations of a move did you have, uh, which we'll, of course we'll call sigma. If you look at that black line, the standard deviation, the volatility in all prices has generally ranged from 10% at the low end for the brief periods where we've been in a lower vol environment to north of 30%. Over the last five years, WTI has averaged $62 a barrel. So one standard deviation move, which means um, what kind of sensitivity could we have in any given quarter relative to that five-year average is actually a, a nearly a $20 move today. Oil went from 60 to 120. That's a, a, a three sigma, a, a three standard deviation move to the upside. So when we look at sensitivities, it, it's not about looking at 10 or $15 relative to whatever you think consensus is. I would define it in at least $20 chunks. So we've gone more recently from 120 to 100. Now that's over a few weeks. If you average those numbers, 120 for a quarter and $100 for another quarter, it's just a one standard deviation move. And there's certainly the potential to have one and a half to two standard deviation type moves, especially in an environment where you're out of OPEC spare capacity, your above ground inventories are low, CapEx is still generally at the lower end of what the cycle will probably ultimately take us to. And we're in a world where we need demand destruction, unfortunately, to help balance oil markets. We should expect a higher volatility environment to continue. So again, versus the last five-year average of $62 WTI, one standard deviation move, if it lasted for a quarter, is simply $20 a barrel. $20, $30, $40 moves, it should be expected. And I think the question is, how is a company, how is an investor, do you plan for that? So to me, the question is, really, how do you take advantage of downside volatility? For companies, I would ask the question, if a cycle trough were to return within the next 12 months and last for 12 months, are you prepared to deal with that? Again, it's not about wishing we wouldn't have downside or saying, well, for the next five or 10 years, I think we're in a bull market. I do think we're in a bull market. But in an environment, again, where oil supply and demand is going to balance through regular periods of demand destruction, that suggests you're going to have recessionary environments. And in those recessionary environments, you're going to have downside. As a company, are you prepared to deal with it? And again, I'd ask the question, are you break even? Will you be profitable at what I would call a normal trough? Negative $37 is not a normal trough. Uh, I'm not asking for five sigma moves or something outlandish here. Uh, relative to that $60 average, if we were to have $60 or $70 for 12 months, which is hardly unreasonable, it's actually the five-year average, 
Will your company actually be break even at a minimum and ideally profitable? Can the base dividends and the base stock buybacks continue? Everyone's got these, you know, uh, con- you know, contingent variable dividend and other uh, payout models for incremental free cash flow. But looking at the base dividend and or base stock buyback, can those continue at whatever that reasonable trough is? Uh, and then finally, and probably perhaps most importantly, at least as importantly, can you take advantage of those troughs for the companies that either aren't as good on the balance sheet or take a different view of the world? Uh, what is the potential to take advantage of counter cyclical M&A to be well positioned to do it? Can you write a check for what you want and what may become available? Um, I think that's really a core to potentially adding quite a bit of value as a company. And I, I put here, think three sigma, at least think one and a half to two sigma. Uh, and probably for that deep trough, can you withstand, uh, in this case, three sigmas, $60 type downside. So if we're at 120 back to 60, I, I think that's personally too extreme looking at over the next 12 months, but you should be prepared for it. You don't have to go crazy again with the negative oil prices, which I think are ultimately going to be an aberration. Um, everyone, and I mean everyone, is short term in their nature. Now, Wall Street, is often the group that's accused of focusing on quarterly profits and being too short-term in nature. I, I got to tell you, the group that has really surprised me, I probably have not paid enough attention to them in my career, but it's really the policymakers and the politicians. Um, they're worse than the shortest-term day-trading bucket shop investor out there because the solutions are often hurtful, at least with the day-trader. Uh, they may get too enthusiastic or too pessimistic on a day-to-day basis, but they're not really creating uh, anything that, that, that harms anyone. But po- bad policy can certainly harm a whole bunch of people, especially those least fortunate in society. And the extreme short-termism, you can see it from current leadership in the United States. You can see it in the leadership of places um, that observe oil markets. Maybe I'll be polite here at this moment. But it is uh, actually, frankly, kind of discouraging how short-term politicians and policymakers are. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say with the management teams and boards, my observation is there's a range of perspectives here. Some managements and boards, I think, are too short-term focused. Many are very long-term focused. I think there's a need for everyone collectively to better understand the volatility regime you're in and, and how to take advantage of it uh, and to not decry it just because you wish it wasn't there. Um, What we ultimately need in this industry is actually long-term projects. So because of the climate concerns, because of the net zero promises, because of what had been a six-year bust period for the sector where returns on capital were very poor, essentially everyone's saying don't invest in long-term projects. Focus on short-term shale is maybe okay because somehow that might meet our near-term energy needs, but it won't be there long-term. I think that is all going out the window. And frankly, it's always been a bunch of nonsense. We need long cycle, long-term thinking when it comes to energy. We're going to need energy supply for decades and decades to come. The idea that there's going to be some very quick shift into stuff that's inherently unreliable and that not even clear how net zero the new stuff really is. Let's put that aside. We are going to need crude oil and natural gas 
for many, many decades. And so to me, it's not a question that we should only be looking at short-term projects, which everyone is saying. Investors are saying just do short-term. The politicians, the policymakers, especially those left to center, are all saying, yeah, maybe we can, maybe we'll be okay with some of this short-term stuff. We need a long-term capex uh, that can generate long-term free cash flow and energy supply. The, the pros are when you invest upfront capex, which is often part of a long-term project, once it's online, the free cash flow lasts for many, many decades. Examples are obviously oil sands, LNG. The risk is you have cost overruns. That was a real concern uh, and a real negative for the sector in the 2010 to 2014 timeframe. Now, that super cycle started, depending on how you dated, 2002, 2003. So for everyone that didn't start spending until the 2010 to 2014 period, that was a, that was a bad time to start. We'd already had six or seven years of massive upcycle and cost inflation. That is not the time to start long-term projects. Start them earlier in the cycle. It's hard to do because usually people are backwards looking and too bearish. Uh, and right now we're going to layer in ESG and climate and all this kind of stuff. So everyone's is conspiring to say, don't do long-term projects. If you're going to do them, do them earlier in the cycle. And I would argue they are badly needed. They are absolutely worthy of consideration, especially at this time where CapEx really, uh, with the exception of maybe some of the premium rates, it really has not ramped anywhere. And I already mentioned oil sands and LNG. Uh, we, you know, we are going to need Canada to be part of the solution here. Uh, Canada should be amongst the last barrels produced in the energy, uh, in the energy transition era. So Supervol versus Supercycle. It's a mindset. It's a mindset for the energy transition era where policy and ESG risks, uh, you know, are going to rival fundamentals as key risk factors. I want to be clear on one point. When I talk about being prepared for a trough and when I talk about uh, the inherent volatility and the potential for downside risk, I am not trying to be bearish. This is not some secret bearish spin uh, YouTube video. It, it, it's an acknowledgement and a recognition that we're going to have volatility, and by definition, <laughs> it's not always to the upside. Uh, it is to emphasize the volatility point and to figure out how, as a company or as an investor, one can be proactive in, in this kind of macro environment. Now, fundamentals today, there's much about policy and ESG reaction than simply GDP and resource challenges. So in past cycles, the only consideration was kind of What's the supply-demand outlook? Are we going to be in a super cycle or just a, a, a more regular type environment? Uh, what's the outlook for GDP? You know, where is the lower cost? Those are all the normal things oil companies and investors look at. Today, this policy and ESG reaction is as important. And um, it's, it's holding back CapEx. It's causing uncertainty on whether people should invest or not. We are going to need oil and gas supply for many, many decades into the future, especially natural gas, but also crude oil. And that is gonna take long-term CapEx. Um, energy transition as an idea, as a concept, I don't think that's going away, nor should it. We would like to have more forms of energy. How is that a bad thing? And there certainly are areas where solar and wind make sense. There are areas where geothermal and heat pumps make sense. But there are still billions and billions of people 
where good old-fashioned crude oil and gasoline and diesel make sense. And I think for even longer periods than that, we are going to need to have natural gas and LNG as part of our part of our power generation mix. You could argue in power generation that we could go all nuclear. That is a path that I don't think it's likely, but is possible. It does not seem possible that you can go all renewables. That that's it's a joke. It's a complete joke, right? So in that environment where policymakers and the climate diehards are saying renewables only, um, and they're not really on board with nuclear, I think that is where uh, natural gas is going to have to fill the role because people are going to actually want to have power that turns on 24-7, 365 days a year, not just some of the time. So I'll end this video on a personal note. I was really sorry and saddened to hear this past week of the unexpected passing at the young age of 63 of His Excellency, the Secretary General of OPEC, Mohamed Barkindo, uh, in his home country uh, in Nigeria. He died uh, unexpectedly and suddenly. I have had the good fortune to have met him on several occasions all through my interactions and affiliations with Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy. The first meeting was, I want to say, in late 2016, 2017, when His Excellency came to New York to meet with a bunch of Wall Street people who were supposedly shale experts. I was fortunate to be invited to that meeting. And it was a great meeting. Uh, he asked some terrific questions on how sustainable is shale? What is the profitability? How can these companies do this? And it wasn't just uh, the Secretary General asking questions. He empowered his colleagues who were with him to also ask great questions. It would have been of the caliber as any type of meeting I would have ever had at Goldman Sachs with either our top investor clients or management teams. I was really impressed with the fact that this wasn't about grandstanding. This wasn't about rhetoric or speech making. It was actually a, a, a research-oriented discussion. He was trying to actually understand the issue. I, I think His Excellency had one overarching objective in mind is how do you have stable oil markets for ultimately the betterment of both producers and consumers. Yes, I know some will say OPEC is an economic rent-extracting cartel. That perspective or discussion is for another video. In the case of His Excellency, he was a tremendous leader. By my observation, only a handful of meetings, he was a nice, decent man who was trying to actually understand things from a pragmatic perspective. How do we ensure we have enough crude oil supply for the world? And how do we know we have a sufficiently high price to ensure producers can continue to invest in the sector? That is a very reasonable objective. And in a world where we are so lacking in leadership from an energy perspective, especially from leading countries like the United States, look at our current government, uh, Europe, um, other industry observers who maybe I'll stay polite and keep it nameless, None of that applies to His Excellency. Here's someone who sought pragmatic solutions, sought to understand fundamental issues, and who was inclusive in his leadership style. And most of all, based on my interactions, he seemed like a really decent, nice man. I do hope during this very sad time, his friends and family who clearly would know him better than I did, hopefully they gain comfort in the tremendous positive impact His Excellency had on the broader world. And I, for one, am lucky to have met him and I'm, I'm sorry to, to have heard that he passed away at, at such a young age. Mm -hmm.
Thank you.